Good morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. I'll be reading um, verses 21 through 47. Will you please stand for the reading of God's word? And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with, them, with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There are also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is God's word. You may be seated. Test one, two. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to church. So glad that you're here with us this morning. And as, as Lauren mentioned already, we're in a season of Advent. And so uh, Merry Christmas as we look forward towards the uh, next few weeks of uh, this season of the church. And um, what's, what's ironic, and, and as you guys can see, we're also wrapping up the Gospel of Mark as a church. And so uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, we are covering what amounts to kind of the climax of the story, and in many ways, the most important story of all of Scripture. 
And um, it's, it's clear that these events shape what we believe and what we celebrate uh, as, as Christians, the, uh, the cross and the empty grave. So while it's in fact Advent, the season of Christmas, we're actually kind of in the middle of Good Friday. So this is a Good Friday service in a way. Um, Jesus dying on the cross, the work he does uh, in his death is, is so foundational to what we believe as Christians. And so uh, you may recall, I've said this from time to time, I've mentioned this aloud the last few weeks. Um, look, it, it's important to remember that this has all gone according to the plans of the Father. This is all according to plan in many ways. Spiritually, this was a divinely appointed um, ordained moment by God. And this is actually our big idea this morning that I just want to remind you of um, this morning. To defeat death and sin, God gave his perfect son up for us to die on the cross. To defeat death and sin, God gave up his perfect son for us who died on the cross. And, and it, here's the thing. It feels like a tragedy, right? It feels like you're reading something that has gone awry, that something hasn't gone the way it's supposed to. And sometimes, I don't know about you, um, I, I sometimes think of tragic things in terms of an accident, right? Like there was, uh, you look down at your phone to check something while you're driving, and, and bam, you hit a car in front of you, right? Something like that where it's like, well, you should have been paying attention. There should have been uh, some more thought put into that. I need to pay attention when I'm driving, right? Like peace talks will kind of break down between two countries, and things don't go the way it's supposed to, and it turns into a war, and it's like, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. And, and sometimes we think of bad things happening as accidental, as someone dropped the ball, someone didn't do the right thing along the way. And I want to remind you as we kind of dive into the crucifixion story to remember God, God doesn't miss, right? Like, like he, it's not like he's not paying attention here. God is always paying attention. His fingerprints are all over this story. And in fact, hundreds of years before the life of Christ, this is all prophesied in Scripture. In fact, Isaiah 53.10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush, to crush Christ. And in Mark 15, we see the fulfillment of numerous uh, uh, prophecies. So this morning, before we look at this from kind of an expository standpoint, I want to get your help in a bit of a call and response and show you what I'm talking about. Um, on the screen behind me, there's going to be a column on the left, which are all the Old Testament prophecies, and I'm going to have you read those aloud with me um, as you correspond those verses in, in Mark. So uh, the first one we see up here, uh, and I'll read the left, and, you, and we'll read together on the right. We see in Mark, uh, it's in Psalm 69, 21, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Altogether, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. He was numbered with transgressors. And with him they crucified two robbers. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They have pierced my hands and my feet, and they crucified him. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. 
And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich, a rich man in his death. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. Um, it's, it's important that we understand the context in which we're reading. These are not just random events that happened accidentally. There's no oversight. There's no, uh, when, when King Jesus endured all this on the cross, it took place according to schedule. It, it went according to divine plan. And so this is kind of the beauty and the pain of what we read here, this bittersweet frame of the gospel, that throughout Mark we see that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. And he did that so that we could forever be in relationship with him, the Father, and live by his side. And this was God's will, to defeat death and sin in this way so we could be in relationship with him. So there are kind of four distinct things that we see in this passage as Jesus goes to the cross. And, and so as we take notes, there's, there's four kind of points here. First off, and most infamously known, he's crucified. Jesus is crucified according to verses 21 to 32. Now, we've just heard it read. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll read a bit here. I won't read this whole part, but we see at first, it says in 21, they compelled a passerby, or Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And this is the key verse of this point, verse 24, and they crucified him, divided his garments up, casting lots for them, deciding what they should take. When it comes to the actual crucifixion, Mark absolutely aligns with the other gospel writers. We see it, it explained what happens, the, the, the course of events of that day. And, and you'll notice, though, that Mark's description is somewhat understated. There's not very much here in terms of the actual crucifixion. Now, make no mistake, I think I mentioned this actually at Easter this past year. Crucifixion was a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, it was a terrible process. It, it's actually where we get the word uh, in the English language, excruciating. That's kind of the root idea of the word crucifixion. But here in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chooses to talk more about really the isolation that Jesus is, is enduring here. And, and he does so, you see at first, with a bit of encouragement. Although against his will, there's a man by the name of Simon who was compelled by the Romans, which was kind of one of the things that they, they, they could do at that point. It was their legal right to do so. Simon was forced to help Jesus carry the crossbeam that his arms would be nailed to. And the one bright spot, according to church tradition, if you can call it that, is apparently his sons, Alexander and Rufus, would go on to be a part of the church. They would be saved. They would put their faith in Jesus. But for our time and place, and for Jesus, it seems that this man, Simon, is kind of the last friendly face that Christ will see before he's nailed to the cross. Mark describes that they will take him to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, and it's outside of the city walls. And they offer him some wine mixed with myrrh. And it's meant to be a bit of a narcotic, right? Like kind of a little bit of a, hey, let's have some mercy on this guy. He's going to go through this hard horrible thing, take the edge off the pain, but Jesus decides not to take it. He decides to go to the cross with an open and clear mind, his eyes wide open, and in verse 24, Mark says, as I mentioned very simply, 
and they crucified him. It's very short and to the point. You go to the other gospels for details. You go to church historians for details about the crucifixion process. But um, listen, if, if anyone is new here this morning, and this is all new to you, crucifixion was invented by the Assyrians in 300 BC, and it was uh, a way to uh, execute someone publicly. It was a technique, a death penalty, uh, that was meant to humiliate and make death very painful. So this this uh, this started with uh, the, the the criminal's wrist being uh, tied up to these cross beams, and large nails were were inserted right in between these these wrist bones. And they did that so that way his his uh, the wrist would be able to hold the weight of his body up on the crossbeam. Crossbeam was lifted up, sunk to attached to a sunk wooden post that was in the ground, and Jesus' feet were put one on top of another, and a nail, a single nail, was driven through his feet. And it's it's an awful way to die. It's um, it's it's clear even through the brevity of of Mark's telling, um, and. Listen, it takes some explaining and understanding today in our context. Thank God we don't live in a time where people are still, this happens on a regular basis, where people have to be explained. But listen, for, for Mark's audience, it would have been common knowledge. And that's why he says, and they crucified him. Everyone knew what that meant. And he states the facts. And Jesus hung on the cross, and below at his feet, there are soldiers who are dividing up his garments and fighting over who gets to keep his, his cloak. Two thieves, one on each side, and the king of the Jews in the middle. Crucifixion is, is a physical, torturous way to die. It's, it's incredibly harsh, but it also uh, involves mental and emotional pain. Mocking and humiliation is a big part of this process, too. Remember, being sentenced to crucifixion wasn't just about uh, having the death penalty carried out by the state. There are more efficient and fast ways to kill people. This is actually reserved for those who are Rome's greatest enemies. And so the Romans would crucify people in public spaces and allow them to suffer in public for days as a reminder that you don't mess around with Rome. This is what happens to those who step out of line. And so, uh, as was tradition, a line of mockers parade by him. They laugh at him. They challenge him to come down. They throw his own words in his face. The religious leaders, the scribes, join the fray. Look at this guy. He saved other people, but he can't save himself. By the way, that's an amazing verse in verse 31, because in that, they affirm that Jesus saved people. And in the end, Mark does not paint so much a picture of physical suffering, but he paints one where Jesus is alone and deserted, and we see the crucifixion carries with it humiliation. I, I feel like this passage is one that I look forward to preaching for, for years and years and years in the future. In, in some ways, um, one of those passages that we can kind of take in a different light each time we read it. And so each Good Friday, each Easter, when we talk about the cross and the empty grave, there's an opportunity as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, to be able to approach this differently. And one of the things that really stuck out to me uh, in this reading, as I think about the cross, and to bring us into the story a bit, because, listen, it's very clear that Jesus died for us physically, but do you know this morning that Jesus bore the, the weight of humi humiliation for us as well? 
That's something I want us to think about a little bit this morning. It's likely this week that you and I have sinned in some way. I know that I have. I've, right? Like there's, there's ways for us to, to, to sin each, each day, and, and maybe that comes to mind for you right away. But when we sin, when I sin and you sin, what is it that accompanies that sin oftentimes? I know for me, sometimes that feeling goes way back to when we were kids, right? We were caught red-handed by mom and dad, and it's that idea of shame, right? Like, it's humiliating to be caught in our sin, to be caught in, in, in that moment where, where it's exposed, and you realize, like, I've gone my own way, I've done my own thing, I've been rebellious, and I've chosen what's good for me as opposed to what's right in the eyes of God, in the eyes of my parents or whatever. And, and I want to see, I want, you, I want to show you this morning and remind you that the cross, through the cross, we see how gracious that God is to us, that not only does Christ die for our sin, but he bears the weight of humiliation and shame for us as well. That's a big deal. And I don't want to wait until the end of this sermon to, to give you some good news this morning. Listen, Jesus' death, he puts our shame to death as well. And some of you might be living this morning in, in shame. You may be humiliated by the way your life's turned out or the way that your, your sin has brought you to this place. And you are living in shame as a believer when you ought to be living in freedom and joy. Maybe you grew up in a legalistic background. Maybe you grew up you know, Catholic or there was a big focus on right and wrong and guilt and shame, whatever it was, and you never understood the doctrine of grace and what good news that our shame can be gone because of the cross. And so that's the first thing we see this morning, that Jesus was crucified for us. And secondly, what we see is that he was forsaken by the Father. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This uh, darkness, by the way, is the first of two miraculous things that happened around the death of Christ that day. It's only 12 in the afternoon. That's what it says in Scripture. And maybe you'll recall um, last month, I think it was last month, there was an eclipse happening. Um, and, you know, a lot of news stations were kind of reporting on it. I think it was around mid-October. I made my kids watch it with me. They were not impressed at all. They kept on wanting to do other things. Um, eclipses are interesting because it's, it's not completely dark, but it's eerie kind of how dark it gets. Is it the shadow that's over? There's literally a shadow. There's literally a shadow over, over uh, what you can see. And it gets dark in the middle of the day. And if you can imagine kind of what's happening here at Mark, Mark says that right about midday, the entire sky goes dark. It's completely dark. Well, why does this happen? Well, it's a, it's a visible, physical picture of the divine judgment of God. It's as if God is saying, what's happening here is, is, is messed up, and, and I can make this whole world dark uh, in this moment to, to make that statement. And then Jesus, as he's suffering upon the cross, he cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In, in reading this, we are left with some challenging words in scripture. There's a mystery to be had here, for sure. Um, 
And if you break it down, I, I do want to point out in, in verse 34, this is a statement of faith. He calls out to his God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So first off, I don't want you to understand this as Jesus getting cold feet. He's not doubting who God is. He's in the middle of sorrow. And what Jesus does in this moment is what he does often all throughout uh, his life and ministry is that Jesus will quote scripture into, and put kind of into words how he feels through through grabbing a scripture, and it's actually an amazing example for us to follow. Maybe you are in a place where things are hard or you're, you're feeling like you want to cry out to the Lord. What a great resource we have in scripture that we can go to the Psalms, that we can go to, to throughout the Bible and see how, how, how should I put to words how I feel. And so he chooses Psalm 22, which is a song of lament, and it's, it was used by the Jews as a way to process grief and sorrow and loss, and it's exactly the kind of thing that someone would have said in this moment. And so Jesus, in this moment, he takes on the awful, terrible sins of the world, and the Father, he, he turns his head in this temporary moment. Listen, much has been made theologically about God turning away from Jesus in this moment, but I, I do want to set your mind and your heart at ease here. I don't think it's a weakness in God's character on display, nor do I think for a moment that anything uh, in this verse points to Jesus losing his divinity or his sonship temporarily. These things are rock solid. So verse 34 is not problematic for us theologically. What I do think is happening, though, is I think that God is revealing in this moment both his anguish as a dad, both his, 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 his this hardship as a father, and also his holiness as God. That's what I think is happening here. And this is what causes God to turn away from Jesus momentarily. So maybe as a parent, you can relate to this a little bit. If you have kids, maybe your son or daughter breaks an arm or they get a cut and they have to experience something painful. And, and listen, I, I've kind of mentioned this before from up here. I would like to think personally that I can handle pain and especially the pain of my kids but the reality is sometimes there's an emotional thing that happens when you see your kids in pain that you just can't look at what's happening, right? Like you have to turn your head. And I think that is understandable for any parent to understand how even a perfect heavenly father would need to avert his eyes from their child being in pain. To take a minute in the hospital you know, hallway to gain composure kind of thing. In addition, the pain being caused is a direct contrast to God's character, his holiness. And, and so the sin and the filth of, of the entire world is put on his son in one moment, and God, who is holy and perfect, it's like oil and water mixing, right? These things cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And so Jesus cries out. The Apostle Paul would later write, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, for us, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on the sin and penalty of death itself, and in doing so, he was made the substitute. And we can think of it as this greatest exchange that has ever taken place. Martin Luther actually explains it as well. He says this, 
read the quote. That is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are, are no longer ours but Christ's, and the righteousness of Christ, uh, not Christ but ours. He's emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them in the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness. What a, what a deal that we get, right? When Jesus went to the cross, what a, an incredibly one-sided transaction that we receive, that we benefit from. We give up our sin and brokenness to Christ, and he turns and he hands us his imputed righteousness and holiness. What an amazing gift. And so Jesus was forsaken by the Father, so we wouldn't have to be. This means, church, that you and I, we are not spiritually forsaken. We are known. We are loved. We are, we are in relationship with the Father. And when we repent and believe, we are given the spirit that will never leave us. And so just like the cycle of shame that we can fall into, don't fall into a trap as a Christian to think that you are alone. You are not alone. What good news that is for us. You are not forsaken. Jesus was forsaken once and for all, so we never have to be. So Jesus was crucified. He was forsaken. There's one other thing to remember. Jesus was different than all the others. Jesus was different. Verse 35 says this, And some of the bystanders, hearing Jesus call out, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. What's going on here? Well, in every culture, the Jews included, they would have these kind of urban legends. They would have these kind of stories that would go around. And one of them, it was a widely held belief that back then that Elijah, who, if you recall in 1 Kings, was a prophet, he actually never died. God called Elijah home without him physically dying. And the rumor is, is that Elijah would at times come to uh, help people in great times of need. And so folks hear Jesus call out, and they incorrectly assume, well, he must be calling for Elijah, because that's what people do when they're crucified. They, they, they kind of return to their, their, their antiquated ways of thinking or the things that would bring them comfort. And so someone goes into fix-it mode, right, and grabs a reed and soaks a sponge in sour wine and offers it to Jesus. But Jesus is different. Uh, he's playing on a different field. What? Where some would cry out to their heroes like Elijah, Jesus is actually calling out to his own heavenly father. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This loud cry before his last breath is perhaps the it is finished that John records. And I want to point out that even in Jesus' last breath, he is distinct, he is different, he is unique. Because those who were crucified oftentimes took days to die. It would take days and hours and hours, and they would, over the course of days, suffocate of exhaustion, being hung on that cross, and they would have to pull themselves up to take a breath each time, and over time, their body would just wear out. They would expire, but not so with Jesus. He hangs there. He still has strength. He speaks up with a loud cry, and then he gives up his life. 
He gives up his life. It's not taken. He gives it up. And at that moment, we see the second of the miracles that happened that day that occurs in the temple. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There are uh, two curtains in the temple. The author of Hebrews talks about this. as a curtain probably between the people and the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is the place where God's spirit was said to dwell. And the curtain was massive. It was a huge curtain. Like, so we have curtains up here, right? I would actually imagine that this curtain actually would be hard to tear in some ways. We're talking about a curtain that was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide, and it was thick, right? It was meant to not only be uh, practical in terms of separation, but th- it was made out of a really high quality of fabric, and the, only the high priest could go beyond the Holy of Holies, and the high priest would only go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the moment where he gives up his life, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And the message should be clear for us. Access to God is now available for all. And the temple is out of business. What an amazing physical moment, the statement that God makes and, and suffice it to say, all these events together set Jesus apart from, from any other criminal's death. And it actually happens to be the Roman centurion who testifies to this. We see this in, in, in verse 39. Now, a centurion was an officer, by the way, who was in charge of 100 soldiers. He's not uh, a stranger to death. He would have been a guy who was very experienced on the battlefield. He would have also probably stood there for many crucifixions over his career lifetime. And it doesn't say this in Scripture, but I would imagine a a man like this, a man who's been around death a lot, it kind of reminds me of of friends of mine, friends of yours who are first responders. If you've ever talked to somebody who's a nurse or who's been an EMT or a police officer or a firefighter, these people who serve in these, these ways, they see the worst stuff in the world, right? They see people at their worst, on their worst day ever. And after a while, unfortunately, they kind of become numb to it, right? It's like, I've seen that happen. I've seen this person die. I've seen this horrible thing. And the centurion is standing there. He's seen the worst of the worst. And he's watching the day unfold. And, and he knows something is different about this guy. And the thought probably started with the mocking a couple chapters back. This back and forth. Because it's like usually people like speak up when they're being mocked. Usually people maybe curse back or throw things back. And, and Jesus is different. He's silent. And the centurion stands there as this crucifixion happens with the king of the Jews, and the sky goes dark. What is happening right now? This has never happened before. Middle of the day, okay, this kind of feels like the world is ending. And even with all these things, it's actually Jesus' last breath that sets him apart truly. He goes out with a cry. His life is not taken from him. It's given up. And in that moment, Jesus gives it up. In verse 39, the centurion says this, Truly, this man was the Son of God. If, if you recall, like a year ago, when we started Mark, Mark 1, verse 1, it starts this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And these words are repeated here in verse 39. And outside of his disciples, 
and Christ himself, the first person to publicly put together the truth and make the confession is a Gentile Roman officer. And he sees clearly what so many religious people, think about how many verses and pages we've covered here of people interacting with Jesus. And he sees what these religious people have failed to see. Jesus was different. The centurion understands what many of us have as well. But allow me to ask you this morning, have you, have you said this for yourself? Have you thought this for yourself? Can you truly say that this man was the son of God? Jesus is different than any other. And, and just to kind of sum up some thoughts here, what other great person in history with the power and authority of God humbles himself to be born an infant, born in poverty, what we're celebrating here during this time of Advent. He's born in a cave with poor parents. He's, he serves as kind of a homeless, wandering teacher his whole life. He heals people. He's, he's listening to God. He's spending time with people in ministry. He's obedient to death, even death on a cross for us. Do you see what the centurion saw? Truly, I tell you, this man was the son of God. Jesus was crucified, Jesus was uh, forsaken, Jesus was different. And because of this, our last point this morning, Jesus was beloved. He was beloved. Verse 40, there was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the younger and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. It's only after Jesus' death that we see these details about these women who are along for the ride. And in our culture, we don't really grasp the uniqueness of this, that Jesus had women who were his followers, that were, were following along, who ministered to him. But listen, this is a big deal that Mark includes this. Throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, there are only two groups that is ever said to have ministered to Christ. Countless people took from him, but there were only two groups, and that was, there were angels and women. And Jesus was beloved by these women. And if you notice, Mary, by the way, is a very popular name um, at this time, and that might require some explanation. There's Mary uh, Magdalene, unfortunately, often regarded and uh, thought of as a prostitute, but there's actually no biblical evidence that she ever was. But she did have a radical encounter with Jesus. She was possessed by seven demons. Jesus gave her freedom, and she followed that by serving him the rest of her days. Mary, the mother of James, by the way, not the mother of Jesus as well. Uh, Salome, the mother of the apostle John and his brother James. And yet other women still, Mary, Mark says that were, were there. They, they were a part of the story. They were following from a distance. And this is a testimony of the impact that Jesus has on people and the effect of his ministry and friendships uh, had on his relationships. And it's also amazing to note how important uh, women were and continue to be in ministry. This is a, a, a small detail, but it could easily be a larger point. It's clear that God values women and uses this group to support Jesus as he dies. Jesus is also beloved by perhaps an unlikely character. Look at verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, 
a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So here's the thing. Because Christ died so surprisingly fast, and because the Sabbath was starting that evening, there was no time to spare in getting Jesus buried. And this is where Joseph of Arimathea steps in. Joseph is actually a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a big deal. He's an important guy. And this is the council that sentenced Jesus to death. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Joseph had not consented to it. But still, with all his pull, he could not stop it from happening. I want you to see two things about Joseph here, and maybe you've already pointed them out and you're, you're actively reading with me, but if you have a highlight or a pen, first of all, Joseph was a sincere seeker. He was sincerely looking for the kingdom of God. And what a great reminder to not judge the whole group, right? I wonder how many other people who were in the Sanhedrin or scribes or Pharisees were also in, in, in great kind of tension and trying to figure out who is this guy? He's so different. And yet they were going along with kind of the, the party rules at that time. This religious leader had one eye on Jesus for a long time, and it seems that he's likely a believer. And so when they crucified his Lord, he waited, and then he sought to give him the burial that he deserved. And the second thing that you note about Joseph is that it says he took courage. He took courage. And he asked for the body of Christ. And that definitely takes some courage. Why is that? Well, because Jesus was crucified as a traitor. And by Roman law, he was not permitted to be given a, a proper burial. So this is a risky move, right, to go in front of Pilate, to go in front of the centurions and, and all those people, especially as you yourself are part of the council that just had put him to death. You would seem guilty by association. And so he risked much. Because uh, not only that, but theologically, every member of the Sanhedrin would know, cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. And so to be associated with Christ at this time was, was very risky. Verse 44 says this, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Pilate's surprised, as we've said before, people usually lasted on the cross for days, and he's so surprised, in fact, that he goes to the guy who's most um, understanding of how death works and seeing the most amount of dead people, that he says, let's call the professional in. The centurion says, yep, he's dead. He's gone. And for reasons that we perhaps will never know, Pilate agrees and releases the body to Joseph. Maybe he's playing politics, maybe he's sympathetic, I'm not sure here. Verse 46, and Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapping him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We know that Joseph was rich because not many owned their own tombs. With the, this huge stone, it was a luxury, and Joseph takes what was his luxury and he offers it up to the disposal of Christ. Being a man of means as he is, we don't have to imagine that he did all this himself. He probably brought his people with him. They bought a shroud. They lowered the body in. They wrapped him and laid him in a tomb. So I, I, I want to remind us, what, what compels a man like Joseph to do all these things? 
He goes to great lengths and risks to ensure that Christ has a proper burial. And in this uh, entire narrative, I realize this is, this is heavy. There are very few glimmers of hope. But Joseph, his example is one that I think we can all look to. Because I believe there will also be a day, and maybe this has already happened for you, where you will have to risk your reputation to be obedient to God's call in your life. I don't know what that looks like for you. There will be a day, though, that you will have to put uh, forward your own personal resources, things that you have saved for, things that you have sacrificed for and worked hard for in order to take a stand for Christ in some way. It will cost you something. And I'm not sure what that looks like or when that will be, but I do believe God honors those steps of obedience. But like Joseph for Jesus, it starts with a posture of love towards him. And that's kind of where I just want to end this morning, is just to ask more about your affection for Jesus. Jesus is beloved by these women. Jesus is beloved by his followers. And even this man, Joseph of Arimathea, do you love him in the same way? And for all that Jesus is and for all that he did, that we are kind of winding down here, Mark, that we can look back on, does this produce affection for him in, in your own heart? And I hope that that is one of the most enduring responses 2,000 years later for us after the crucifixion. I think there's lots of ways to respond to someone being crucified. Um, there's this kind of morbid fascination. And I bet there were a lot of people in the crowd who had watched Jesus from afar who had that kind of posture and thought like, oh, this is interesting. Well, I, want, I want to see the details of it. There's, there's pity or guilt that you might feel. That's how Pilate felt, I think, in some ways. He, he felt guilty. He felt, he felt pity or sympathy towards Christ. But I think for those of us who are true believers, the crucifixion ought to produce in our hearts worship and affection. Realizing that he went to the cross for us. Worship and affection. And this is the irony of our reality as Christians. We take something so cruel and so awful and so ugly, so painful in death, like this Roman cross, and it produces in regenerate hearts the opposite effect. And I think in some ways, this is even just a, a heart check of like, do you, do you really believe in Jesus for your salvation? Do you, do you love him in this way that you realize it's a grace to us? It's his kindness and affection that draws us in. And if you allow it, it's a sacrifice that we will never forget, never minimize. It fundamentally changes us. Has the cross changed you? Let's ask the Lord to do that work in us as he renews our mind as he helps us see the truth in that. Let's bow our heads together this morning. God, we are grateful this morning for this chance to remember, to reflect, to, um, to feel the sympathy of pain even, Lord, as we remember what your son went through on the cross. Lord, I, I pray that we would approach that story, that truth, properly. And God, that as it sits with us this morning, as we remember what Jesus endured, 
that it, it would produce in us love, affection, a desire to know that man who died on the cross. God, we're so grateful that you have been good to us through your son, that he suffered and died and was forsaken and humiliated on our behalf so we didn't have to be. And so, Lord, would you uh, remind us now as we take the Lord's Supper, would you remind us as we uh, leave this place and go into to lunch conversations and, and community, God, would you give us that reminder that your son did the work so we didn't have to. We love you and praise in your name. Amen.